join me this morning. We will begin in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look briefly today at verses 6 through 9. The title of our sermon is The Faith of Abraham. And our key words for our worshipers in training are Abraham, covenant, and believed. I wonder if you know that nearly 90% of Americans claim to have faith. And that may surprise you, but there's another really important question that we have to ask in relationship to whether or not someone has faith. Faith in what? John Lennon once responded to this question by saying, I believe in everything until it's disproved. So I believe in fairies, myths, dragons. It all exists, even if it's in your mind. Who's to say that dreams and nightmares aren't as real as the here and now? So it's faith in everything until proven that it's not worth having faith in. Mahatma Gandhi advocated for a faith in humanity. He said, you must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is like an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. The American poet and novelist Sylvia Plath, she seemed to follow George Michael's famous advice that you got to have faith. She once wrote, I talk to God, but the sky is empty. The Buddha taught man to doubt everything and find your own light. So faith for Buddha was in whatever you discovered for yourself. Albert Einstein said, I believe in intuitions and inspirations. I sometimes feel that I am right. I do not know that I am. Faith in a feeling. It's like saying, go with your gut or follow your heart. In all of her infinite wisdom, Oprah Winfrey says, just a little bit of faith can get you through so that you eventually create what you believe. That's faith in faith. I believe in that which I have faith in, therefore it is what I want it to be. I once had a family member tell me that she didn't care what her children believed in, but only that they believe in something. Now, in a culture like ours, it is not uncommon to hear someone say all of these ideas are valid because, after all, we all create our own truth. So you can have faith in the sky or in a rock, in your friend, in your child, in yourself, in your politicians, your political systems, in the dollar, or in faith itself. And all of these are okay if they work for you. Now, a vast majority of the 90% of Americans who say they have faith would say that they actually have faith in, in God. But what God would that be? Who is he? What is he? Muslims, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, the Baha'i, Hindu, animists, Rastafarians, you name them, they probably believe in God. But the problem is the God they believe in is quite likely very different from the one you and I believe in. But that has got to be one of the most important questions we can ask in this life because it changes everything. 
What do you have faith in? Or perhaps I should ask, who do you have faith in? I hope you can answer that question honestly yourself. Your answer may not be my answer, but I hope to show you that it should be. The object of our faith is critical. What or whom I believe in will dictate all the ideas and the details of the life that I live or I don't really believe in that person or that thing. So as we consider faith this morning, I want to focus in very narrowly on the faith of a man named Abram or Abraham. Interestingly, Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike all claim Abraham as one of the most significant men of their faith. But I want us to see this morning that the Bible really shows that Abraham's faith was very specific. And for the Jew or the Muslim to claim to have the same faith as Abraham is a complete misunderstanding of the object of Abraham's faith altogether. In fact, I believe that the Jews and Muslims, when thinking about Abraham, make the same exact mistake that many Christians make today. And namely, to say that Abraham simply believed in God. Now, that's not entirely incorrect for the Christian to say, of course, but it's not the whole picture. When someone tells me that they believe in God, I have gotten into the habit of saying, explain him to me. Who is he? What is he like? So we're going to ask the Bible that question this morning as we look to this great man of God. Because Paul shifts his argument now in Galatians chapter 3 to use Abraham as an example for a larger point he's making about what it is that saves us. We're actually going to spend two weeks in this passage, verses 6 through 9. And today we're mainly using it as a reference point to direct our focus to the faith of Abraham. But let's begin by reading Paul's argument in chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 9. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith." Now, Paul is assuming in his argument that his readers are familiar with the life and the faith of Abraham. So we're going to take time out this morning to look at that very thing because much of chapter 3 and 4 of Galatians are consumed with Abraham. 
And Paul writes in, in verse 6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is his main point in the entire section. In fact, it is so important to Paul that he also writes about it in Romans chapter 4. And James picks it up in the book of James. So Galatians 3, 6, as well as Romans 4, 3, are quoting Genesis 15, 6, which we looked at earlier. But let's turn over there now to Genesis chapter 15 in our Bibles. We're going to spend our time working through several of those verses to lay a foundation for us as we move forward in the book of Galatians in chapters 3 and 4. Now, Abraham initially known as Abram, was the son of Terah and the husband of Sarai or Sarah. He was from the land of Ur, and God called Abraham to to leave his native country for a land that he would show him. And when Abraham arrived in that land called Canaan, God promised to give him the land to him and to his descendants who would become the nation of Israel. And so the Lord promised that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. Abraham faced the ultimate test of faith when God commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And because Abraham was willing to do so, God once again promised to bless him and to multiply his offspring. God spared Isaac from death by providing a substitute as a sacrifice, which is a clear foreshadowing of the substitutionary death of Christ as a sacrifice for his people. So we're oriented with Abraham. We probably know at least something about him. But before this sacrifice, before this great story about Abraham that most people are familiar with, we come to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God makes with Abraham the first of two covenantal arrangements We'll actually deal with the Abrahamic covenant in great detail as we move through the book of Galatians. Uh, But this particular text, I think we have underlying assumptions that keep us from understanding exactly what it means. I want to read first, again, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, and then we'll break it down a bit more. And we'll look at a few other passages as well. We're not staying put in one place this morning like we usually do. I think it's going to be helpful for us moving forward. So stay alert and keep your Bibles handy. You might win the sword drill today. Genesis 15, let's look at verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now verse 1 says, 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. I want us to think about that for a minute. Now, the most common understanding probably is that Abram heard God's voice in a vision. But I want to ask you, when someone has a vision, and it is also said that what was happening came to him, the idea isn't generally that something happens with the ears, but rather happens with the eyes. Back in Genesis twelve seven, the text says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram. Well, we all know that man has never seen God. God does not have a body like man, and yet we read that God appears to Abram. How could it be? Now, also, I want you to notice how verse 15.1 is written. The word, singular, of the Lord came to Abram. Not the words of the Lord, but the word. Now, perhaps you're understanding where I'm going with this. Where else do we hear that language? Most of you are probably familiar with the opening verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. We know, of course, John was speaking about Jesus. So John was pointing out pointing out that prior to the incarnation, prior to Jesus coming in the flesh, the Word was both equal to God because he was God, but he was also separate from God. He was with God as a person of God. So as far as Jesus is concerned, John helps us understand both the godness of Jesus while also understanding him to be a separate person. This really strikes at the heart of our understanding of the Trinity. God is one, and yet God is three persons. But where does John's language come from? Where does he get this idea to call Jesus the Word? Have you ever thought about that? I want to argue that this is language that comes directly from the Old Testament in numerous locations, particularly in the prophets. Now, I don't want to belabor the point too long, but I think at least two other examples will be helpful for us. So first, let's consider the call of the prophet Jeremiah. If you'd like to turn there, Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 1, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. Jeremiah chapter 1. And verses 4 through 9. This is the calling of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying... So, the word of the Lord came to him, same language as was used to describe Abram's experience, but here more explicitly, Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord said something to him. The word of the Lord came to me saying, that's really significant. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, you see that? He's calling the word of the Lord 
by name now, Lord. Do you say, I am only a youth? For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. All right, now hold on to your hats because here's the big surprise. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched his mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, perhaps you were skeptical about what I was saying about the language of the word of the Lord, but now there's no denying it. He puts out his hand and he touches Jeremiah's mouth. This isn't figurative language. There's no qualifying words in there to to assume that that would be the case. There is an actual experience here that Jeremiah had with the word of the Lord who came to him and spoke to him and touched him. This is more than a purely auditory experience. It's the same as we've seen with Abram. Let me give you one more example. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is the call of Samuel, and you're probably familiar with this passage, but perhaps you've missed a few of the details. So let's look at that together. 1 Samuel chapter 3. We read beginning in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now that should strike you interesting right there. The connection between the word of the Lord and vision. Now take note of what's next because if it was simply an auditory experience, uh, the next statement would be completely unnecessary. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Why does Eli's eyesight matter? The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. All right now, grab your seats, here it is. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. 
And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now look at verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So let's think about this. Notice there is a link between the word of the Lord and visions, seeing something, right? This is the same thing, again, that we notice in Genesis 15.1. Now, again, we pointed out Eli is blind, and there really is no other reason that what, than what I am putting forward that his blindness is even mentioned. Then the text says three times that the Lord called out to Samuel, but Samuel did not recognize the voice because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. If you don't know the word of the Lord, you don't know the Lord. Now, at some point, the text tells us in verse 10, the Lord came and stood in front of Samuel. And finally, Samuel saw the word of Yahweh. But it took some time for Eli to figure it out. Why? And then we see it's because he's blind. And later the Lord appears again to Samuel and he reveals himself to Samuel. How? By the word of the Lord. Maybe you're a little bit freaked out right now and that's okay. But I hope this is starting to come together for you a little bit more. My whole point is to bring us back to Abraham's experience to explain what Paul means in Galatians when he quotes Genesis 15, 6, saying that Abraham believed God. There was an object to Abraham's faith, not just an idea and not just a promise. And in fact, if you look at Genesis 12, 7 and 17, 1 and 18, 1, you will see that Yahweh appears to Abraham in those places as well. And I'm saying that we need to understand these times to be physical appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, otherwise known as the word of the Lord, or in some places in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. This is the second person of the Trinity Jesus Christ. And that may be hard for some of us because it really challenges us to think supernaturally. But I will remind you that we also affirm that Jesus was born of a virgin and was raised from the dead. So the fact that he appears in the form of an angel or had some physical temporary properties without taking on flesh is not such a strange thing. So when the Old Testament specifically talks about seeing God, we have to remember that God, when we speak of him in the singular God, that he, as he is, he has no body. He is a spirit. He has not a body like man. However, the second person of the Trinity, the word of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is God's physical presence among men. I can give you numerous examples of where we see this in the Old Testament. And it should just fill our hearts with overwhelming joy and amazement because Jesus is not just in the Old Testament through types and shadows and promises. He is actually in the Old Testament 
personally, physically, interacting with people in a real way. Abram wasn't just hearing a disembodied voice in his head or in the sky. Have you ever thought about that? Abram is talking to the word of God, to the word of the Lord. Look again at Genesis 15. Notice we see in verse 5 where it says, and he brought him outside. Who is he? Verse 4 tells us, the word of the Lord that came to him. There is a real, physical, personal being here. Not human in flesh, that comes at Jesus' birth. But this is the second person of the Trinity, no doubt. It explains how, later in chapter 15, he is able to walk through the severed, remember, God walks through the severed animal carcasses to cut the covenant with Abraham. Who was that? It was the word of the Lord. So Abram saw the pre-incarnate Jesus. Abram talked to the pre-incarnate Jesus. Abram had a relationship with the pre-incarnate Jesus. And we could look at numerous other examples in the Old Testament of others to whom the word of the Lord came, and we could say the same of them. They knew Jesus, and they put their faith not just in a promise to come, but in Jesus himself. Now, no doubt, they were believing and trusting that the promise of God would be fulfilled. They knew there was some kind of fulfillment that was yet to happen that they didn't really understand completely, that they would be delivered from sin and and bondage, but they didn't quite grasp all of the how. How was that going to happen? So they certainly did believe a promise, but the very thing that Paul is pointing out in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 is that Abraham believed in an actual object of faith who is Jesus himself, not just an idea, not just a promise of Jesus. One Old Testament scholar named Michael Heiser writes, the deity who would one day become a human being and whose body would be from the line of Abraham was speaking to Abraham in physical form before even the first of Abraham's children had been conceived. Isn't that an amazing reality? An incredible thought? So now having all of this in mind, let's look at a few of the specifics of Genesis 15 so we can understand more of the substance of Abraham's faith. Again, we saw in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And the first thing we see, the word of the Lord said to Abram, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. This is the Lord calling Abram to believe him, to trust him. Abram, you have nothing to fear. You can trust in me. I will supply your every need. Now, no doubt, by this point, Abram and Sarai, his wife, were discouraged. They had no children. Her womb was barren. Certainly by now, because of their age, they assumed they wouldn't have a child together at all. It just didn't make sense. And so now we see the Lord doing what he does for all of his people. When we're discouraged, when we're down, when we're hurt, when we're suffering, the Lord is there. 
He is our shield, and he calls on us to trust him. It's one of the reasons we gather for worship. We come together to meet with the Lord and to meet with one another. And in our hour together, we are reminded yet again of the goodness and the kindness and the love and the mercy and the grace and the strength and the protection and the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ to each one of us who is trusted in him. And so when we call out and say, here I am, Lord, he comes, as it were, to stand next to us and to hear us in our prayers and to meet our needs. And in him, our reward is very great because he is our reward. Our promised reward is the Lord himself. And if you have trusted in the word of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, your reward is great. Friends, there are some of you this morning who do not trust in, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And when life deals you suffering and trials, where is your strength? In what do you find your hope? The Lord says, hope in me, rest in me, find strength in me, know that I am the only hope. Jesus is the only way that we move through the grave into everlasting life. And apart from Christ, we have no assurance of anything other than everlasting judgment and torment because of our unwillingness to acknowledge Jesus as who he is, the great king, the great savior, the great Lord. Will you trust him? Will you depend upon him for all that he is and all that he promises? Well, now, after the word of the Lord tells Abram that he is his shield and his reward, Abram poses a question. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. The question from Abram is based upon a promise from the Lord back in Genesis chapter 12 that from him would come the seed of a nation. But Abram was an old guy. Now, the nice Bible way of saying Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. The problem he's bringing up is that the best he has to take over all that he has is a foreigner. In other words, I don't have a son to whom I can leave this to. It's going somewhere else. And then in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him, and said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. In other words, you are still yet to have a son. He's coming. Just hold on. It will happen. Verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram is in his late 80s, probably, when this particular thing is happening. And he hears this promise, and he would certainly be astonished by it. A son? From me? It couldn't be. 
I'm advanced in years, and so is my wife. Some of you are going to start saying that about yourself. I'm advanced in years. How could it ever be that we are going to have a child now? But the promise is critical because it's a promise through which the entire nation would be born. And through the Lord, to whom Abram was now speaking, would become flesh and dwell among his people. That he would live a perfect, law-fulfilling life and die a sinner's death to be raised from the dead and atone for all the sin of those who put their trust in him alone. And so what was Abram's response? The same thing every one of us is called to. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Notice it doesn't say he believed God's promise or that he believed what God said. It says he believed the Lord. If I wrote you a check for $1,000 this morning, which I am not going to do, I'm sorry, but if I did, you're not putting your trust in that check, are you? You're trusting in what that check represents is actually going to pan out. In other words, your trust is in the reality of actual dollars being put into your bank account, not in that piece of paper that I hand you with my signature on it, right? If you don't think that's true, then try to deposit a check from an empty account, and then you'll see the value of the piece of paper you had in your hand. So you see, you don't have faith in a promise or something that you hope in. You have faith in the actual thing itself. And in the same way, Abram has faith in an actual object who is Jesus. Not just God, generically by name, but the word of the Lord. Jesus Christ. And this is what I've wanted us to see this morning. Because when Paul quotes verse 6 of Genesis 15 in his letter to the Galatians, he's telling them that Abraham had faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus Christ they had faith in, but were now waffling from. And it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It wasn't because of Abraham, anything that Abraham did that he was counted righteous. It wasn't because he was greater or more spiritual or more holy or more faithful, and we will look at all of that next week. But it was because he believed in the Lord. His faith is in Jesus Christ, who, because he has proven himself perfectly trustworthy, can promise all that he promises to Abram and all that he promises to you and I, and we can trust that it will come to pass because it always has and it always will. And so if you are a Christian, the object of your faith is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It always will be. It always has been. Additionally, your faith is in the validity of his work that has been done on your behalf. Faith says, Christ did that for me. He died for me. He was raised to life for me. Faith lays hold of that good news. It accepts it, it receives it, and it changes our hearts. It does not eliminate sin, but it causes a person to hate sin, to want to destroy and eliminate sin, not only because it hurts us, but because God hates it 
and because we want to honor God by doing, and, uh, by doing what he asks and not doing what he hates. And so I hope you'll consider this question. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as the object of your faith? Have you accepted that the good news of Jesus Christ is for you? Are you living on your parents' faith, your church's faith, your pastor's faith, or your faith in faith? Do you realize that Christ came to Abram, protected him from harm, won great battles for him, promised him a seed, and delivered on his promise? Do you realize that Christ in the flesh is the fulfillment of the promise? Do you know that he did all of this so that you might have salvation rather than condemnation, eternal life rather than perishing in sin and death? And do you desire in your heart of hearts to obey him? Are you grieved by your ongoing sin? Or do you not think you really have much of that anymore? Is your life one of repentance and humility? Or is it simply one that wants everyone else to repent and bow before your righteous majesty? We need to answer those questions. And in answering those questions, we will know whether or not we are in the Christian faith or if we simply have a borrowed faith or faith in faith that will get you nowhere and will buy you nothing. Trust, like Abram, in Christ alone. And that faith, that trust, will be counted as righteousness. That is what the scriptures say. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we, by faith, can trust in Christ, who is all that he is for us and is all that we need that we might live. I pray, God, that for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand, that we will be spurred on this morning to greater faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that Christ has revealed himself and has made you known through himself that we might trust in him, not just in what he promises and not just in what he has done, but he himself, that we may trust in Christ himself and that we might love him and abide in him and follow him and be conformed into him. I pray, God, for those who have no faith in Christ, who have a false faith, that you would be at work in their hearts by the power of your word and by the gospel of Christ to transform them, to give them new hearts of flesh that they might see and believe and behold that Jesus Christ is Lord. May they rest in Christ alone. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.